shrinking sea ice, melting glaciers, and raging wildfires. We're already seeing the effects of climate change around the world. And scientists warn, without big changes, the future looks grim. Today, we're hearing from experts about what the future might hold. Joining us are three scientists from Portland State and KGW's chief meteorologist to talk about climate change in the Northwest. From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. Climate change is a topic we're hearing more and more about in headlines around the world. Last month, 7 million people in more than 80 countries took part in the global climate strike. And another one is set for November 29th. Here at home, Portland State this month held a Northwest Climate Conference, bringing together presenters from many different disciplines to discuss how climate change will impact the Northwest. Rising sea levels, warming ocean temperatures, and record-breaking wildfires, just some of the threats climate change presents. What's the outlook for the future, and how will we respond as a region? We're pleased to have with us three experts in the field from Portland State University to give us a closer look. PSU Assistant Professor of Eco-Hydrology, Dr. Kelly Gleason. Dr. Andrew Fountain, Professor of Geography and Geology. His special interest is in glacier ice. And Dr. Paul Loiketh, Assistant Professor of Geography and the Director of PSU's Climate Science Lab. And also joining us, KGW's Chief Meteorologist, Matt Zafino. Welcome to Stray Talk. It's great to have you all here to discuss this important topic. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Let's start our discussion with how each of you would you know, give us a headline on climate change. How would you describe the state of climate change today? We'll begin with Kelly. Okay, climate is changing. And there are a lot of implications of this. Uh, near, to, near and dear to my heart are that snowpacks are declining. Because of that, the volume and timing of stream flow is shifting and droughts are persisting while wildfires are getting bigger and lasting longer on the landscape than we're used to. How about Andrew, what's your headline? What's the state of the climate today? Well, the glaciers are changing and uh, places I used to stand on the ice are no longer there. So that to me is kind of a very tangible evidence that things are different than they used to be. And Paul? So I, I think about the climate system sort of from the atmospheric perspective and so temperature is a, a key variable when you think about the atmosphere and the temperature of today is warmer than it used to be. So you think about climate as the long-term average of weather, the long-term average of temperature is now warmer than it was decades past, earlier in the 20th century, and that warming is continuing currently and into the future. And Matt? You know, I think about something I heard the head of NOAA say a few years ago. NOAA is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, which is the governing body of the National Weather Service, and other organizations, and the quote is very simple. It's real, <clears throat> it's happening, it's us. So when I think of the state of the climate and how to answer that question, that's what I think of. And then I go into the numbers in my head, like the, the uh, parts per million of CO2 that we're up to now that we haven't seen in the industrialized age, and then into the impacts um, that we see from a warming climate.
climate. And then just in my work in over 30 years of forecasting on a daily basis, I see numbers. Paul, you and I talked about this uh, at the Water Bureau about how uh, we look at something, a pressure level in the atmosphere that's kind of midway through the atmosphere. And we're seeing the height of that pressure level reach elevations that we've never seen before, that I don't remember seeing since I was in college. So there's a lot of things like that that, that I think about when I think about the state of the climate. And we're going to dig into a lot of these topics in just a moment. Our environmental reporter, Keely Chalmers, in the last year and some of our other reporters have looked at the impacts of climate change on different aspects of the Northwest, from the oceans to our wineries to the ski industry. So let's listen to a few clips as an example. When we first moved here in 2003, the property was out to, uh, from what you see here, was out another eight to 10 feet of property. A lot of things have fallen, like a flagpole and trees have fallen into the ocean from here. The plants are telling us they're, they, they're, they're sequencing or is all earlier. Uh, we're getting earlier harvest, earlier bud break, earlier bloom. All of the winemakers will tell you that they are now turning this cool climate uh, type of area into an intermediate warm uh, in or, and they are making money at it. But we don't know what the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years are going to bring. Our snowpack is going to be a lot less. Our, uh, from a water resources point of view, there's going to be probably a lot more floods in the winter. That The precipitation that falls will be more in the form of rain than snow and less water to get us through the dry summer. So those are just some of the examples. PSU hosted the 10th annual Northwest Climate Conference earlier this month. Paul, you're the chair of that. What representatives were there? What was your mission with this conference? So this conference is an annual conference. This was a 10th annual Northwest Climate Conference. And um, each year it brings together a diverse range of experts from across the Northwest, people that are climate scientists and people studying the physical climate system like we do, all the way to people that are studying um, real you know, impacts on the ground or taking action, working with policymakers, um, stakeholders across a, a range of different um, perspectives and cultures. So it really brings together this well-rounded group of experts to share knowledge about the current state of the science, the current best practices, um, all working together on this sort of um, theme of making the Northwest a more climate change resilient place. And a couple of the presenters, Andrew and Kelly. So let's talk about your specialty, Andrew, glaciers. You have studied thousands of glaciers throughout the West, and recently you and colleagues looked at the glaciers in Washington's Olympic National Park and at a glacier called the Lillian Glacier. And we have a couple of comparative photos to show you what's happened with the Lillian Glacier from 1905 on your left and 2002 on your right. Will you describe this for people listening and watching today, what we're looking at here, Andrew? Well, this is a, an extreme form of the kind of things that we're witnessing in the Olympics and elsewhere uh, in the U.S. and for that matter around the world, where some of these glaciers that were very robust at one time have entirely vanished. And as I said, that's an extreme form. Uh, most glaciers have um, receded or shrunk by you know, 40 or 50 percent since that time. So this, this Lillian Glacier, in a sense, is kind of emblematic of what we're seeing on the landscape generally. What does that mean for the future over the next decades? Well, um, what happens is as the glaciers recede, uh, they can't supply that needed meltwater in the late summer. After the snowpacks have melted away and it's a snow-free landscape, you have these glaciers sitting there melting like crazy in the months of August and September, supplying this needed meltwater uh, for the high alpine regions. So that's one of the dramatic effects. 
Well, let's take a look at another glacier, a comparative photo. This is the Newton Clark Glacier closer to home on Mount Hood. The one on the left is from 1901, the one on the right from 2012. Tell us about this one and, and what, what the consequences are. Why, why is this happening and what does this mean for, for our future? Well, the glaciers respond to two things. One is precipitation in the form of snow that nourishes them. And then the other reason uh, is, uh, or the other factor that, that they respond to is air temperature. Uh, warmer air temperatures, more melt. So with increasing global warming, not only are the glaciers melting more, but that needed snow in the wintertime is changing phase from snow to rain. So the precipitation might be the same, but it's falling as rain and not nourishing the glaciers, so it's a double whammy for the glaciers. So, so do the labs, or sorry, does the, do the Olympic Mountains, is that an especially good glacier lab, if you will, because they get so much precipitation there, or is there another area in the west that is like really a good canary in the coal mine? Well, uh, the Olympics are, are a very sensitive area because they're relatively low elevation, right. so they're very sensitive to that change in precipitation from snow to rain. Others, say in the Sierra or maybe uh, the Wind River Range in Wyoming, are less sensitive to that feature, although they're all subject to global warming and increased melt in what the uh, summertime. What happens in 50 years? Do you think they're going to be gone? Well, our modeling based on uh, global circulation models suggests that the glaciers in the Olympics will be gone by 2070. And if we're wrong, they'll be gone by 2090. Wow. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah, Kelly, yeah. You, you focus on, on water as well. You look at drought and forest fires, how climate change affects the snow accumulation and our water resources. What are you seeing in Oregon? What trends are you seeing? Profoundly, we're losing our snowpacks. And you know, snow, I think we don't, all of us don't recognize how important snow is as a water resource, particularly in the western U.S. in the Columbia River Basin. Half to three quarters of our annual water budget is seasonally stored in the snowpack. And that snowpack is getting shallower and warmer because air temperatures are warmer. And those shallower snowpacks tend to melt earlier in the year. And also, um, you know, they just have less volume stored as in these sort of high mountain reservoirs. They act almost like, you know, dammed reservoirs, storing water during the wet winters and then releasing water slowly during the late spring, early summer, which is the period of high demand for forests, fish, and people. Um, so as snowpacks are getting shallower and warmer, they're me melting earlier in the year, which is shifting the timing of stream flow and down downstream water resource availability. Um, because of that, we tend to see an extension of this summer seasonal drought period, which dries out our landscape uh, more severely, but also over a, a longer temporal period. So we tend to see these years with earlier snowmelt tend to have very big fire seasons the following summer. And sort of this vicious cycle is occurring where earlier snowmelt is causing an increase of forest fires on the landscape. And it, it really brings home this sort of interconnectedness of water in our landscape and how it really ties you know, our high mountain systems to people. It is our sort of ultimate resource. Matt. Yeah, and then, and then, you know, that's the one side of that positive feedback loop, but then what happens to the snowpack in areas that are now burned forests as opposed to intact forests, right? That's the other side of this. Exactly, that's sort of my specialty is looking at the flip side. Uh, we know that snowpacks influence forest fires, but it turns out also after a fire occurs, 
the landscape has changed and those sort of standing dead charred burn trees tend to shed a lot of black carbon and burn debris into the snowpack that accumulates each winter following that forest fire. And so up to decades following a fire, snow within those regions tends to melt earlier in the year. So there's sort of this double whammy vicious cycle occurring where um, <clears throat> earlier snow melts is potentially further exacerbating forest fires and then forest fires are are feeding back and exacerbating earlier snow melt. Yeah, so it's a big loop and you've looked at like even like the the microchemistry of the substances that burned trees are laying out in the forest and how they absorb radiation from the sun and, and melt things off even quicker, right? Exactly. So in a, in a burned forest, you have a burned away canopy. It tends to be a lot more sunny. You have more energy available to snow melt. And then this black carbon, these burned particles in the snowpack itself prime that snowpack to absorb more of this available sunlight energy. Super uh, interesting. really have to look at sort of the microphysics of the snow grains and how they interact with those particles to be able to fit them in models and understand really on a landscape scale what does this mean to our snow and then water resource availability. Wow. So interesting, all the connectedness here. Kelly and Andrew look at sort of the impacts of climate change. Paul, you look at, at the broader view, kind of the, if you will, the 30,000 foot level of the atmospheric view, the weather variations. Matt looks at the same thing. And what are you seeing generally in the region? So I think a theme here has been temperature. And one of the most notable changes that we've seen in the Northwest and that we're continuing to see uh, progress is a warming of our air temperature in all seasons, although recently we've seen some really notable hot summers. Um, in particular, 2018 stands out as breaking the record for the most days above 90 degrees in Portland. But across the Northwest, the past decade or so, we've seen this, these really tremendously warm summers. But that's part of a trend of warming that's been going on for decades um, and really has been seen in all seasons, not just in the summertime. Um, so that's one thing that sort of stands out and that drives a lot of these changes that we're talking about. So the freezing level of the atmosphere is getting higher. So snowflakes turn to raindrops before they hit the ground in places that used to have um, snow accumulation, as, as, um, as we were just talking about. Um, so that's kind of the thing that stands out the most. We've, um, when we get to other types of um, variables like precipitation, um, we do expect to see an increase in extreme precipitation, so the heavier events becoming heavier um, in general across the state of Oregon. But that gets a little bit more complicated as we start to get away from, from temperature here, at least in the Northwest. So the confidence um, when we're talking about extreme precipitation, for example, is higher east of the Cascades. That, the, that increase in the heaviest events will be um, experienced more so than west of the Cascades where we are here. So broadly speaking, temperature is the big story, I think, here in the region, and it drives all these impacts, which and are so important. we have some graphics to, to illustrate that, and we have one that shows warming overnight lows. And Matt, can you tell us about this? Yeah, so this is a graphic put together by um, Climate Central, and they're using data, I believe, either from NOAA or NASA or both to come up with this graph, and it shows that for Portland, that our overnight low temperatures have been increasing on a fairly steady pace. If you did the, the yellow line in the middle is the average, and then the white line with the ups and downs is the interannual or the yearly, if you will, variability. And, but it clearly shows a warming of the overnight low temperatures. And that's super important, as I learned talking to the folks at the Water Bureau, um, for our water supply and for fish in particular, because they're highly sensitive to water temperatures. So those warmer nights, and we saw that this summer, actually. I mean, I looked at some of the data just from this summer. We only had like 
I don't know, it was like 84% of our summer nights from June 1st until uh, September 27th when we shifted into a cooler pattern, like 84% of our overnight low temperatures were all above average. It was an, an, a real eye-opening number as to just how, and it's interesting too because you wouldn't necessarily think that because our summer really wasn't that high by Portland standards. I and mean, we were kind of around average with our 90 degree days. I think we had 11, the average is 12. But a lot of people just anecdotally say, oh, it wasn't that hot of a summer, you know, because we didn't have those long stretches of 90s or those several, you know, two, three days of 100 plus. Yet, even though the daytime temperatures weren't necessarily all that hot that, for that often, the overnight temperatures were really much warmer than normal. And it put us in top 10 warmest summers. Oh, is that um, right? Okay. Yeah, 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 even if it didn't feel that way. It's, yeah. That's another, I think, another thing to keep in mind um, when thinking about this. Even our cooler, what seems like our cooler summers or our cooler years, still end up being way warmer than what a cooler year was in the past. So, and and, yeah, and this, this brings up a good kind of human part of this is that, you know, I totally agree. I thought this was a great summer, you know, wasn't, wasn't that hot. Right. And that's yeah, kind what, of the human perception. perception thinking, right? Because yeah. last year was so bad, I'm thinking this year's pretty good. And here it is, one of the hotter summers on, or hotter, one of the hotter summers. So we kind of, our mentality adapts with the times. Exactly. And then also the other thing that happened this summer is we had very little wildfire smoke. Mm -hmm. um, and the number of acres burned in Oregon, I did a graphic on this as well, the number of acres burned in Oregon and Washington is way down, the lowest since I think 2010. Um, and so we didn't have a very smoky summer, um, but I think people's um, expectation of the norm has changed because we've had so many smoky summers that people are thinking that's how it's always going to be. Yeah. Let's talk about the vital signs of planet Earth, and we have a, a web page from NASA's Global Climate Change, and it shows vital stats for carbon dioxide, global temperature, Arctic ice minimum, sea level, and ice sheets. Matt, jump in here, and anybody else who wants to talk about what do these vital signs mean? Yeah, NASA does what I consider to be a really nice job of kind of laying out the vital signs, if you will. And the one that I look at the most, I think, is the CO, the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, which is right now, I believe, 413 parts per million. So to give you some perspective on that, the pre-industrial era baseline was 280 parts per million. And so that's kind of where we were for about 10,000 years with our stable climate. And there are obvious, obviously fluctuations in climate that have nothing to do with humans that have been going on for millennia. But since that 280 level and since the, the advent of the industrial, industrialization and the burning of fossil fuels, that level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has gone up and up and up. And just a few years ago, we crossed the 400 parts per million threshold, which uh, from the research I read, a lot of scientists are like, uh-oh, this is not good because that's kind of a, almost a tipping point. And if you look at past climates in Earth's history um, and you look at, okay, what was our climate like when we last had 400 parts per million, it was a lot warmer. And if we get to 500 parts per million, which many of the models suggest we will and will by the end of the century, then we're looking at three degrees Celsius warming on the planet. That's over five degrees Fahrenheit. And that has huge implications as to the world we live on and would, would cause just dramatic changes to the world as we know in terms of vegetation. And then you get into, you know, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because people need energy. And a lot of our energy is still based on fossil fuel burning, so that adds carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Transportation, we burn fossil fuels, that adds carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So anything we do that increases our carbon output into the atmosphere is making that number go up. And it's not just the absolute value of the number either, it's the rate of change. It's been changing at a rate and going up at a rate that is really 
to my knowledge anyway, un unknown in the natural world. Yeah. That ties into the glaciers that you've been watching. Do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, with increased carbon dioxide, you have increased temperatures, and the, the glaciers are responding accordingly, accordingly. So there's kind of no doubt that these things are all linked together. And Kelly, is there anything, I mean, people at home may feel helpless. I mean, is there anything we can do to slow it down, to reverse it? Well, I think, it, you know, as scientists, we spend a lot of time looking inward to answer our questions. You know, my snow science lab at PSU and my students were really trying to figure out the mechanisms to help um, better inform resource managers to, to handle this new normal. Although I think, you know, there's things we can do as individuals. We can think about our climate footprint, our carbon output um, as individuals, but really some sort of systemic change may be very necessary to save planet Earth. And you're doing something, Paul, at, at PSU. You have a climate science lab. Tell us what you're doing there. What's your purpose? Yeah, so it's a research lab at PSU where we look at a number of different um, topics around atmospheric science. So we, we study weather scales, which are shorter term variability in the atmosphere, all the way through climate scales. And, and climate change is often a motivator for why we're trying to understand the things that we understand. Um, one of the things that we're really interested in, um, which we find super interesting and Matt probably finds really interesting, um, but, but is sort of um, really scientifically specific is, is looking at weather patterns and connecting those, those driving weather patterns to high impact events that we care about. So things like heavy precipitation, um, we look at lightning and the weather patterns that drive lightning. Um, and a lot of this is to get a better understanding of the basic physical science that underpins these events so that we could look more carefully in climate models and understand how these events will change in the future, um, especially for some events like lightning that are difficult to resolve mm -hmm. in the models that we have today. So we're trying to come, come up with different methodologies that we can use to get this information. And by that I think you mean, and this is kind of cool technology, Paul's using something called self-organizing maps which is a really interesting way of letting the computers kind of organize different patterns into different clusters and then seeing what they look like under and how they react in different scenarios. Right, it's a machine learning approach and so the, the data sets that we use are really large and so we need to come up with novel methodologies to mine the data to get the information we want in a way that can be digested and, and understood. Yeah, it's super interesting. And Kelly, you have a, a grant, don't you, from NASA that you've been use, working on your project? I do. I currently have a NASA-funded project to better understand forest fire effects to snow albedo or the reflectivity of snow, which is a really important variable that drives snow melts and also uh, climate responses across the Earth. So we only have about a minute left, but Matt, can you tie this all together for us and leave us with a final thought for our viewers and listeners? You know, it, it really comes down to a... a Education obviously is one aspect and that's what we're trying to do here. But you know, you get you got to the key point of like, what can we do? And uh, it's going to take large scale change. I mean, even if we were to stop burning all fossil fuels right now around the planet, which of course is impossible, there's something that uh, climatologists call commitment warming, which is already in the pipeline because we've already raised CO2 levels so high that even if we did that, it would take some time for the climate to kind of um, balance itself out and get back down to what we have seen in the past. So we know that's not going to happen. So what the researchers are doing is looking at different scenarios and trying to say, okay, what's a realistic goal for the planet? Where can we, how can we, how can we cap our warming at say two degrees Celsius as opposed to getting to four degrees Celsius and then minimize the effects that we're having? Well, Matt, thank you so much. And Dr. Paul Loikiff, Dr. Kelly Gleason, Dr. Andrew Fountain from PSU, thank you for joining us. It's been a delight to have you here. I hope you come back and continue the conversation.
And thank you for watching and listening. A reminder, Straight Talk is now also available on podcast. Here is that QR code again. Just point your camera at that. A link will come up, take you to the App Store, and you can download KGW Straight Talk as a podcast. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.